This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Spiritual Warfare, recorded June 23, 1999, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. If you read through the mystical traditions, you'll find that mystics use a number of metaphors to describe the overall spiritual path. And they're very useful because they give us a sort of like a map of where we're going. <clears throat> One of the most universals is the metaphor of a journey or a quest. This was the metaphor that I used, the quest for the Holy Grail. And I saw my path in terms of this metaphor of a quest for some treasure, some mysterious treasure. And the whole idea of a quest or a journey appears in all traditions. The Hindus and Buddhists talk about crossing the sea of samsara. The idea is this samsara is the sea of deluded life, the sea of suffering that we normally experience. And so the spiritual path is crossing over to the far shore, which is nirvana or relief from the suffering and the discovery of ultimate happiness. St. Teresa uh, of Avila talks about an interior journey into an interior castle. And so the idea is you make this journey through rooms that uh, are uh, more inward. So you're first in the outer chambers, and then you move into the inner chambers, and finally you get to the, the innermost sanctum where you discover God. Other metaphors have been used. Uh, awakening, a journey of awakening. The Buddha is the awakened one, and Buddhist disciples strive to awaken. So here's the metaphor of we are in our present condition dreaming, and realization or enlightenment is like waking up from a dream. Uh, healing's another one. Both Jesus and Buddha were compared to physicians, and the idea is they are physicians who come to help us cure our spiritual illness, our spiritual sickness, which is our delusion. Giving birth is a quite common metaphor, and Jesus, of course, talks about the necessity be, to be born again. But this is uh, also found in other traditions. The whole idea of spiritual life is a kind of birthing. Uh, Socrates talked about himself as a midwife, helping individuals give birth to that spiritual wisdom which is within them. Often it's uh, talked about as a kind of training or a school, Buddhists speak of mind training, training the mind. And the Sufis often use the image of a school, a school uh, of divine manners. And then finally, a science. Uh, particularly the Sufis talk about the science of gnosis. And in the Buddhist tradition, it's presented as a science, a scientific investigation. You investigate reality, what is true and what is false. And you use your own experience as your laboratory. So these are all ways of looking at the spiritual path, this, this adventure that we're all on. And there's another common metaphor in the classical writings of mystics, which is a little used today, and that's of spiritual combat or spiritual warfare. The Buddha said, One may conquer a million men in a single battle. However, the greatest and best warrior conquers himself. Uh, Rumi, the great Sufi poet, writes, The prophets and saints do not avoid spiritual combat. The first spiritual combat they undertake in their quest 
is the killing of the ego and the abandonment of personal wishes and sensual desires. This is the greater holy war. And I mentioned earlier that in Islam, there's this idea of the jihad, the holy war. And for Sufis, the true jihad, the true holy war, is this inner war that Rumi speaks of here. Uh, here's what Simone Weil, she was a great mystic of the 20th century, says. She's talking about spiritual knowledge. Such knowledge strikes more surely than a sword. It inflicts a death more frightening than that of the body. After a time, it kills everything within us that constitutes our ego. In order to bear it, we have to love truth more than life itself. So again, she's using this image of conquering and, uh, and uh, killing the ego and so forth. Now, the reason I think that this metaphor is little used today is partly because in the 20th century, warfare has become so horrible that uh, we just don't see any value in it whatsoever. In point of fact, like all things in life, uh, war has its value in a personal sense. It is true that in war, qualities come out in us like courage and compassion and love that don't normally get expressed in peacetime. And you talk to any veteran and they'll tell you about that. But really, especially with the introduction of mechanized warfare and nuclear weapons, uh, rightly so, war has become almost an absolute evil force, at least on that scale as human being. But there's another reason, however, which I think we as Westerners should be uh, cognizant of, and that is Western civilization now more or less dominates the globe, and so we Westerners particularly want peace. And there's a little bit of self-servingness in this. When you're on top, you naturally want peace. You don't want the boat to be rocked. And then we forget that uh, true peace has to come with justice. And we tend in the world to overlook justice. And we're so anxious to have peace, and we ignore justice. But there are peoples in the world for, who are not on top and who are being dominated. And for them, peace may not necessarily be the greatest value. Justice may be the greatest value. So if we want true peace... We also have to equally pay attention to true justice. I don't want to get off into a social and political discourse here, but we should remember that in our desire and our longing for peace. It can't be peace at any cost when there are people who are still oppressed and so forth. We have to remember justice as an equal part of that equation. Uh, but in any case, the metaphor of spiritual warfare still can be very useful to us individually as spiritual seekers. Because most of us do, in fact, on a spiritual path, find ourselves embroiled in an inner conflict. And it can often feel like a war. And first of all, it's important to know that other seekers before us have gone through this. Because it can be quite wrenching and it also can be quite disturbing. We may feel something's gone dreadfully wrong especially if we start off on a spiritual path with romantic and naive images of what it entails, that it's just going to be about getting calm and blissful and peaceful and being peaceful and so forth. If we're really going to walk a spiritual path, if we're really going to face ourselves, which is what it's all about, and face reality, we are going to uh, run into conflict and inner conflict. And in this conflict... 
as we progress on a spiritual path, we begin to realize that in a certain sense, there is an enemy. The enemy is our own self-centeredness, our own egoic self. And indeed, using these terms, that enemy has to be defeated if you're to attain realization or enlightenment. It has to be defeated because that is precisely what veils enlightenment, what veils reality. So as long as we experience ourselves as being limited entities, egos, selves, then we cannot know who we truly are, that limitless, ultimate, divine consciousness. It's a little bit like the analogy of the rope and the snake that the Hindus and Buddhists use so much, that if you're walking along a path and you see a snake, and you jump back. The snake causes you fear, and you don't know what to do, how to proceed. If you look more closely, however, you may see that that snake is actually a piece of coiled rope. Your imagination has projected a snake upon it. Now, you can't see the rope as long as you're seeing snake. You really have to let go of snake in order to be able to see rope. So it's a similar situation here with a self. As long as you are experiencing yourself as some limited entity ego, you cannot at the same time experience limitless, infinite consciousness. So this morning I'm going to talk a little bit about this metaphor of spiritual warfare, despite the fact that it's not so popular today. And I'm going to talk about how to wage it, some general principles of how to wage it. And I'm going to use a refined metaphor, and that is the image or metaphor of guerrilla warfare, which is something that has really come to the fore in the 20th century. So we're going to look at this and see if we can apply particularly the strategies and principles of guerrilla warfare to this war against the ego or self. Does anybody know anything about guerrilla warfare as a political and military form of warfare? Yeah, I think it's for, uh, for, for one who is weak to start with. Ah, very good. And, um, and it's an attrition mode. Very good. The one goes back and forth. Make the enemy uh, just fear you all the time. Excuse me? Make the enemy fear you that you would pop out any time. Mm-hmm. Are you going to... Somebody raise their hand well, over here? Yeah, similar thing, that they're coming from a position of weakness, and so instead of like meeting the, the enemy head-on, it's like they, the grills hide the forest, and they attack in little skirmishes until the big enemy sort of gets weakened from this continual... And, and they go on forever. You know, they never give up. Good. Very good. This is the essential principle. Both of you have said it. And... Just to fill it out a little bit, guerrilla warfare is usually a people's war. That means it's not fought by a professional armies, at least in the beginning. It's fought by ordinary people who feel that they are oppressed, but who have no organization, are, are not well equipped, uh, don't have all the uh, things that the state, which they see as an oppressor, has. The despotic state has a well-organized army, a well-equipped army. It is already in control, and that's very important. 
So the people who are making a people's war, guerrilla war usually, are revolutionaries. Their ideas that overthrow this despotic state. But they start in a position of weakness. This is a, a very crucial thing. They recognize that they are in a position of weakness. And so to attack the enemy head-on is going to prove to be a disaster. The guerrilla war is, as you mentioned, a protracted war. Already in the beginning, you have to recognize this is going to take a while. You can't expect instant results. I think one of the problems that we Americans particularly have on a spiritual path is uh, we want instant results. We expect magic bullets, and we want to go to enlightenment intensives and get enlightened in one weekend or something. And this is like taking on the enemy head-on. But the way to wage a successful guerrilla war is to recognize right out front the reality of the situation. Your forces are very weak, and the enemy's forces are very strong. So the uh, guerrilla war has then three aims. The first is to start to win over more and more the masses of the people. And the assumption here is that the masses are all oppressed. You can't fight our true guerrilla war if everybody's satisfied with the current regime. But if people are unhappy with it, uh, they can be won over. The trouble is they feel powerless. So the first thing to do is to demonstrate the power that you can win actual military victories against the enemy. Uh, the second thing is you have to demonstrate that you have the people's best interests at heart, that you're not like the despotic rulers who are currently in charge. An example of this, for instance, is that the uh, Chinese uh, Red Army, when it was a guerrilla army, wherever it would go, and when it would gain control of some territory, would immediately redistribute the land of the great landowners to the peasants. So they could see immediately there's some benefit here, that these people really have our interests at heart, and they're not like the mandarins down there in Beijing who don't care about us. So in the first phase of a guerrilla war, the guerrillas concentrate their forces, no matter how small, and they attack a weaker government force. One of the classic examples of this comes from our own American history, the history of the American Revolution, and that was Washington's raid on Princeton. Remember your American history? Uh, on Christmas night, Washington crossed the Delaware with his army and he attacked Princeton. He attacked the British who were encamped at Princeton. And it wasn't a great military victory. It was a very small contingent of British soldiers and he had a very small force. But it was crucial psychologically. By making sure that you only attack when you can win, you start to create a sense of confidence. You also then, as you win, you get to seize the weapons, the arms that the enemy has been carrying. So you start to strengthen yourself in terms of your weapons, your arms. So as a result from these little victories, the guerrillas slowly start to grow stronger and the state forces start to grow weaker. And over a period of time, the balance of power starts to shift. And so in the uh, second phase, the guerrillas then can attack stronger outposts. They can actually hold some territory and they win more and more support of the people. They can actually protect people who sympathize with them and they attract aid from foreign powers. 
other countries that are interested in overthrowing this regime start to look at this movement and say, oh, we should help them, we should supply them. And there's nothing that succeeds like success. So, for instance, as historical examples, the Viet Cong supplied by uh, China, and in the American Revolution, the French helped us. And this is one of the reasons Washington's victory at Princeton was so important. The French were hesitating whether to throw money into this cause. If it was doomed, they didn't want to throw good money away. But when uh, Washington won the Battle of Princeton, oh, the French suddenly got interested, and eventually the French sent a fleet and an army, and that's uh, basically why we won the revolution. So finally, the balance of power shifts decisively. The guerrilla forces are now stronger than the forces of the despotic state. So the third phase begins, and the guerrilla forces now themselves form a regular army, and they attack the enemy's strongholds, and eventually they destroy the despot, and they establish a new regime. So does everybody understand this strategy here? I had to tell you about this awful subject about warfare in order to understand how we might be able to apply these principles. But basically, it is when you, you recognize you're weak and how you, through a slow process, uh, become stronger and stronger. So, if we're going to apply this strategy to the spiritual war with our ego, we have to begin realistically. We have to recognize that the ego is like a despot. The ego rules our lives with an iron hand. If you want to check this out, it's very easy to. Just watch your mind. And you'll see that everything is referred to self-interest. I, me, mine. And you can I see this literally in your thoughts. What do you think about? And whenever you encounter a situation, what are the thoughts that run through your mind? And if you're like most people, what you have in mind is how the situation will affect me. Will it enhance me? Is something I should be afraid of? What can I get out of it? Uh, how can I avoid it? This is the ego being in control. And the ego is like a tyrant. It, and you see this more as you begin a spiritual path because when you don't want to behave that way, you see how difficult it is to break loose from that kind of conditioning, that uh, pattern of uh, self-interest. And the ego's armies here are desire and aversion, the ego's forces. We shouldn't underestimate these. We really have to take cognizance of the fact how powerful these are in our lives. What we want and what we don't want. And we don't just think this, we feel this in our bodies and in our emotions. And then the ego's fortresses and outposts are attachments, what we become attached to. And they're maintained by, if you like, contingents of desire and aversion. So you buy a new house, and you become very attached to that house. It represents something you've worked for for years. And now you're in this house, and what is maintaining this attachment to the house are these desires and aversions. So they're sort of wrapped up in the house, if you like. So at this point, if you start a spiritual path, you think that, all right, I'm on a spiritual path. I can overcome the ego overnight with a lot of good intentions, by making a New Year's resolution, I'm going to be good next year, and I'm going to be charitable, and I'm going to be kind, and I'm going to stop all the self-interest, you're going to find out, if you're like most people, this is a disaster. It's bound to fail. And that's very discouraging. And a lot of people do actually start off with resolutions like that, and then they can't 
just automatically do it. And so then they give up and say, oh, well, I guess I can't do it. I'm not worthy to go on a spiritual path. I'm too selfish a person. I'll never overcome this. So it's very important to be realistic in the beginning and to look at your situation. If instead of taking this attitude, we're going to do away with the ego overnight, we look at our attachments, for instance, which are the fortresses, and we look at the weakest ones. And we realize we're in for a protracted struggle, and we begin by marshalling all our forces, no matter how weak they are, on the weakest attachments. We start working on that first. Then we have a chance for a little success. For example, we at the center here have a precept, and that is not to waste time in frivolous pursuits. So you might look at your life and you might say, well, what's a frivolous pursuit? Well, maybe you're watching three hours of television a night. Maybe you're reading a dozen magazines. Uh, I don't know what you look at your own life. Our precepts are designed to be flexible to, for you to judge what is a frivolous pursuit in your life. That's not something anybody can spell out for you. But you assess your life. And then, for instance, instead of saying, ah, television, frivolous pursuit, I'll throw out all television. I'll take my television down to the goodwill and get rid of it. Chances are that might work for a day or two, and then you're going to get uh, very bored and restless, and finally you'll go, uh, go out and buy another television. But if you start with saying, well, okay, so I watched three hours of television night, so what is the most frivolous of all these programs? Maybe I can just cut out a, an hour. And you start with that, well, that's more doable. And if you can do that, this builds your own confidence, your own psycho-spiritual confidence. Oh, yes, I can do these things, you see? So uh, you begin with some small little attachment, not some great big attachment. And you, you try to overcome that attachment. The same thing might apply to a practice of meditation, for instance. A lot of people want right away, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to meditate half an hour a day and I won't be distracted. I'll overcome all my distractions. Distractions are really driven by desires and aversions, you know, when you're sitting there. That's why you're distracted, because there's desire and aversion underneath it. And a lot of people will start that way and maybe the first few days, it's great. Anything new is usually great for a day or two, you know, it's the, the honeymoon. And then, you know, it starts to get a little boring, and then suddenly you find you really can't do it, and then resistance builds up, and you don't even want to do it anymore, and, you know. It would be better, literally, to start once a day to sit there and watch three breaths without any distraction. That would take less than a minute. Three breaths without any distraction. If you start to do that for a week or two weeks... And then when you could watch three breaths without distraction, you went to four breaths. When you could do four breaths, you went to five breaths. When you could do five, you went to six. You see how much better that would be? You'd start to build confidence. Yes, I can do this meditation practice. Actually, if you built that confidence, you might then be able to make leaps and bounds that other people couldn't make who were starting with even a 10-minute practice. There's nothing like confidence to give us a sense of wanting to do a practice more. We have a little success in it. Just like kids learning to play some sport or something. 
it's a good idea to uh, let them win a little bit in the beginning. Give them confidence. I can do this. So again, you have to decide. Each individual has to decide what are their strengths and weaknesses. But the important thing here, the principle here, is to do something that you can be successful at. And to have the humility or the realism to recognize what you're up against. If you do this, not only do you gain spiritual confidence, you actually appropriate the energy that went into those self-centered desires and aversions. For instance, in a meditation practice, if you start having success, you actually start to desire to do that practice. It's still desire, but now that energy of desire is being turned into the practice. You see what I'm talking about? And then you can go on to do more things. You might give up an hour worth of television, and then you might uh, spend that time reading spiritual books. So the energy that you're dissipating in frivolous pursuits, for example, you can now use that energy, that time and energy, and turn it into the spiritual path. So this is like uh, appropriating the weapons of your conquered enemy on the battlefield. But here the weapon is energy, inner energy, psycho-spiritual energy. The guerrillas win over the masses by winning victories, small victories, and there's actually equivalent in our own experience as spiritual seekers. If you start winning small victories in things like meditation or working with precepts and so forth, you start to win over what are really subconscious psychological forces. This is something that's very mysterious, and as I've often said, we don't really have a well-worked-out spiritual psychology, but you can notice this in your own experience. One of the ways you can see this is, if you really start getting into a spiritual path, chances are you'll start having spiritual dreams. And if you pay attention to spiritual dreams, you'll see, sometimes you'll have dreams where you have to do something, and there's a crowd of people. Not necessarily a big crowd, but they're like extras. They're sort of standing around. And what you're doing is being watched by them and judged by them. I had one very clear example of this on my spiritual path. I had gotten very interested in Jung, and I got a lot out of reading Carl Jung, the psychologist. But I got to a point where I, I started to see that Jung wasn't going to take me as far as, and as deep as I wanted to go. That there was a limit to what I would get out of Jung. And so this was the jumping off place for me into true mystical questing. And there was a little back and forth hesitation at that point. And I had a dream one night where I ended up at a hotel or a resort and Jung was being very pompous and ordering everybody around. And I finally stood up and said, no, that's enough of that. You know, stop this. We're not going to listen to you anymore. And, and everybody was very relieved. They all clapped or applauded and, you know, the people around there. Now, this really symbolizes there are forces in us that, that we're not aware of normally consciously that waver and go one way or another. Often mystics talk about a spiritual path catching fire. Suddenly, the attention, the energy, everything is thrown into a spiritual path in a way that wasn't there before. And it sort of takes off. And you, you know it's more than just your conscious little awareness. 
You feel it coming from deeper regions. And it's true, it does come from deeper regions. So this is the metaphor here, the equivalent of winning over the masses. You are convincing your own inner forces that this can work. Yes, we should go. The second phase begins as weaker attachments overcome. Then the seeker is in a position to take on stronger attachments. So, for example... You might now take a more powerful uh, practice, not just of keeping precepts, but of actually trying to love your enemies. This is something that's talked about in all mystical traditions, particularly stressed in Christianity and Buddhism. And it's a practice. It's not just a nice thing to do for the world. Jesus said, uh, love your enemies and not just your friends, because... Everybody just loves their friends, so that you won't profit from that. And the profit here is what you learn from trying to love your enemies. It's a tremendously powerful practice for you, not necessarily for your enemies. If they get some benefit out of it, great. But whether they do or not is not the spiritual purpose of doing the practice. When you try to love your enemy, boy, you see desire and aversion arise strongly. You see that self-centeredness. If it's an enemy who actually attacks you, and I don't mean necessarily physically, but that would really be powerful, but someone who needles you, insults you, and so forth, you get to see the self and all the buttons that can be pushed. You get to see this conditioning working out in front of your eyes very vividly. So this is a tremendously powerful practice, and it's a practice that, uh, again, you shouldn't undertake until you're ready for because if you try to do it in the beginning of a spiritual path and you fail, then you will be discouraged. But after a while, if you feel ready to do it, uh, by all means do it, and that's one of the most powerful practices there are. Uh, you might also be ready to do things like give up going to Hawaii for your vacation and instead go on a two-week meditation retreat. If you try to do that in the beginning of a path, you may find uh, you'll have a, a terrible time. You sit there in the meditation retreat hating it and wishing you're in Hawaii and you'll never go on a meditation retreat again. But if you're already into a practice, if you've already made some progress in meditation and so forth, you'll want to go on a meditation retreat. You'll have built the confidence, I can do this. And not only that, if you've been observing your frivolous pursuits and so forth, you may have had an experience the last time you went to Hawaii, it wasn't so hot anymore. And this is a very common experience of people on a spiritual path, that the old things that used to amuse them and entertain them and distract them no longer will do it. So it's not, it's not necessarily a question of conquering these things. You begin to see how fleeting the pleasures are. You know, so you go to Hawaii, so it's great. So you go snorkeling, and then at the end of the day, where's the snorkeling? It's gone. It vanished. Gone with the wind. It's all impermanent. That's yeah, true. <laughs> I have to make a little digression here. See, Gene goes on anti-retreats once in a while to check this out. He goes on retreats, good, and then he goes on an anti-retreat to see if they still have the attraction they used to have. It's a good practice if you're doing it mindfully. Ultimately, you may want to do something like quit a job that is interfering with your spiritual practice. This is what I did when I left Hollywood. It's not necessary to quit a job 
if you can do your spiritual practice, particularly if you can incorporate the job into the spiritual practice, that's great. There are some jobs that are hard to uh, incorporate into a spiritual path, or you may feel you're not up to it. That was certainly the case with me in Hollywood. It was that I was humble enough to know that I could not at the same time work in Hollywood and uh, follow my spiritual path. It was Hollywood was just too distracting. But again, it, you should really be ready. You should really now know this is what I want to do before you go uh, leave a lucrative job. Otherwise, again, you'll have regrets and you'll be turned off to the spiritual path. Here's how Eddie Hillison, who is one of the great mystics I consider of this century, describes her advancement on a spiritual path. With each moment that passes, I shed more wishes and desires and attachments. There are moments when I can see right through life and the human heart, and when I understand more and more and become calmer and calmer, and am filled with a faith in God which has grown so quickly inside me that it frightened me at first, but has now become inseparable from me. Incidentally, the reason her path has uh, progressed so quickly is because she undertook the practice of loving her enemy, and her enemy were the Nazis. Uh, she was a Jew, and this was in the middle of being rounded up and taken off to concentration camps. So that's how powerful this practice can be. But this idea, you see, that this is something that happens over time. For her, it happened quite quickly. With each moment that passes, I shed more wishes and desires and attachments. And she's getting stronger and stronger. And her, her personal desires, her attachments and so forth are getting weaker and weaker, and they're falling away. These sorts of major victories not only build confidence, but they also lead to experiences of joy and bliss and calm, as she describes, that you've never experienced before. Not just thrills at going snorkeling, but true deep spiritual experiences of joy and bliss. And these are the things, so to speak, that convince the masses that you have their best interests at heart. And that, again, is talking about those inner aspects of yourself that have been resistant, reluctant, uh, I don't know, should we go this way or not? When your whole psyche starts to be saturated in bliss and beauty and joy, ooh, then everybody inside you wants to go for this. So it really increases the, the amount of concentrated energy available for a spiritual path. Here's how Ananda Moyamai, a great Hindu mystic of this century, uh, describes it. Just as thoughts about your home crowd into your mind as you draw nearer to your dwelling place, so also the closer you get to God, the greater the joy derived from the ever-increasing varieties of experiences of the divine. Indeed, as you advance to your real home, you realize more and more of this joy. Again, you're taking over the forces of the enemy, so to speak here, desire and aversion. Now you're appropriating all this desire to get to your real home. It just really increases tremendously, exponentially. And at the same time, you're taking over aversion because you become more and more averse to this egoic, self-centered conditioning. 
You start to experience yourself, your little self, not as something precious that you always have to defend and enhance and protect and look out for. You actually start to feel it as a kind of burden that you want to get rid of. And you wish to God somebody tell you how to get rid of it. So this is a real shift in the balance of power here, so to speak. Here's what Anandamoya Mai says about this. Try to dedicate to the supreme every single action of one's daily life. From the moment one wakes up in the morning until one falls asleep at night, one should endeavor to sustain this attitude of mind. By doing so, one will gradually come to feel, how can I offer him greed, anger, and other undesirable qualities of this kind to him who is infinitely dear to me, who is my very own? Him is God here. So it's not a question of uh, now having to conquer greed and anger and things like that. You no longer want to have that kind of conditioning. And so when it arises, it, it doesn't captivate you. It's something that arises rather weakly for you. It's like uh, mopping up operations, if we want to use a military term here. And at this point, or if not before, you also start to attract the aid of a foreign power. And in this case, the foreign power is divine guidance and grace. And you know, when mystics talk about grace and so forth, this is not a theological question for mystics. It's not sitting down and figuring out how the cosmos works and the grace of God comes down. It's an actual experience. And it doesn't really matter what sort of name you want to attach to it. It's an experience of being led, of being guided, of something coming from outside this little egoic self helping you out. Specifically, you start to have dreams where you get guidance. You can have visions or synchronistic things will arise in your life. I mean, these things really, literally do start to happen. At first, they're rather unbelievable, at least if you're brought up in this culture as I was. Uh, but after a while, you come to accept them and to trust them. This is tremendously powerful on a spiritual path. You, less and less does it become something you are in control of. You now feel, uh, oh, well, uh, I just have to go where this guidance leads me. Uh, here's how Theophane the Recluse describes it. He's an Eastern Orthodox Christian. Grace receives free scope insofar as the ego is crushed and the passions uprooted. The more our heart is purified, the more lively becomes our feeling for God. And when the heart is fully purified, then this feeling of warmth towards God takes fire. Those who commit themselves irrevocably to grace will pass under its influence, and it shapes and forms them in ways known only to itself. That's a really beautiful description. So then, the third phase of the uh, guerrilla war, the spiritual guerrilla war, approaches. And in the third phase, the seeker now feels powerful enough and confident enough to assault the ego's citadel directly. And this last battle has two possible outcomes here. The first is that the seeker apparently wins. The ego seems completely subdued, and so the seeker sets up establishing a new spiritual regime. Now, 
as with our historical uh, historical experience of the 20th century, when these revolutionary forces take power, they often turn out to be almost as despotic as the old regime that they replaced. So we have the example of Stalin in Russia, of Mao Zedong in China, and so forth. And this can be especially true on a spiritual path. If you think you have conquered the ego, and now you're going to set up a new spiritual regime, you're likely to end up being an obnoxious, self-righteous saint. And there are people who end this way. They believe they've won the spiritual battle. And they look inside themselves and they don't see any more selfishness left. The trick is, though, uh, that they get very upset when other people don't conform to their idea of how other people should be. And they get very upset if their spiritual accomplishments are challenged in any way and so forth. They can lead very ascetic lives. They can appear to be totally detached from all the material things of life. But there's a tremendous despotic regime going on in the head. There is hope if you, at that point, can really see what's going on and overcome your pride, because that is really what has happened here. Tremendous spiritual pride has taken over. Then you can return to a spiritual path with a very good lesson learned. You'll probably never make that mistake again. There's actually a little story about an enlightened Zen master, and he had a lot of students. And then he got invited to a banquet the emperor was throwing, and he went there, and there were all these nobles and uh, important people. And I think, as I recall, they all had to read a poem. And after he came back from this banquet, he told his uh, students that he was going back to being just a monk. He was no longer a Zen master. And what he realized is how concerned he had been in the situation to look good, to do the right thing and all that. And he realized that actually there was a still a lot of ego there. So he went back and he meditated for another five years, and then he became enlightened, and then he became a, a genuine master. Uh, this is an interesting story because it shows that this does happen, and it shows that there is still hope. And not only is there still hope, this story is told to hold this particular master up as an exemplar. Uh, as I said, if you go down this, this particular cul-de-sac on the path, uh, you'll learn something, and you'll never do that again. So then the other outcome, though, is that you lose the final battle. You lose the final battle and you admit defeat. And in fact, there's a paradox here because the seeker, as long as the seeker is a seeker seeking, that seeker is the self. It's almost like uh, the guerrilla leader and the despot that the gorilla is trying to overthrow are the same person. They're like a split personality in the same being. As long as you are seeking for enlightenment, there is that self-centered grasping in there. I want enlightenment because I want to become happy and so forth and so on. So to fight the, the last battle and to lose and to admit defeat and to unconditionally surrender then grace can take over completely. Here's what Rumi says about this. A person assumes that he will drive out blameworthy characteristics by his own labor and struggle. When he fights very hard and has exhausted all his forces and means and is in despair, 
Then God says to him, did you think this would happen through your power and activity and intelligence? Seek forgiveness for these thoughts and imaginings, for you flattered yourself that the thing would be achieved through the use of your own hands and not that it would be achieved through us. So in a certain sense, it's the the last bastion of the ego is the last delusion that you can conquer the ego. You see, that does everybody get the paradox in here? But if you then at that point can surrender unconditionally, because you really are the ego, the ego has to surrender unconditionally. And here's what Ananda Moyamai says, what happens, how she describes what happens at that point. The he, by the way, here is God. When at his lotus feet one has sacrificed without reserve whatever small power one possesses, so that there is nothing left that one may call one's own, do you know what he does at that fortunate moment? Out of your littleness he makes you perfect, whole, and then nothing remains to be desired or achieved. The moment your self-dedication becomes complete, at that very instant occurs the revelation of the indivisible, unbroken perfection, which is ever revealed by the self, with a capital S, the true self. So this is how the spiritual war ends. It, it ends with a twist here, even if it's a guerrilla war. It ends not with victory, in the sense that the seeker has attained victory. It ends with the seeker's complete defeat. But in the meantime, having defeated all those attachments, in a certain sense, having burned all your bridges, so there's no place to go back to. So all the attractions of the uh, deluded life no longer work for you. And then when you're defeated, when you are totally helpless, when you give up unconditionally, then divine grace takes over. And that's the moment of enlightenment. And let me add one thing here, that unlike political revolutions, when the spiritual revolution is complete, it does indeed bring a true happiness, true freedom, and true peace. It's very helpful for me to think of the small successes. I like that. This is very important. And that really, if you wanted to say this is sort of the heart of the message, that is really the heart of strategy of guerrilla war. It's to resist the temptation to bite off more than you can chew, which is a great temptation for us in our impatience, and to really be realistic about yourself and who you are, where you are. You know, you always want to be a little challenged. You don't want to just do the same thing over and over just because it's successful. So you always want to challenge yourself a little bit, but just enough so that you really have a very good chance of succeeding. And on a spiritual path, even if you don't, even if you do bite off more than you can chew, learn from that. Learn from that. You know, uh, guerrilla armies intend to always win a victory, but occasionally they get in a position where they lose, and then they have to learn from that. So we're not that strong yet. Don't try to take on a whole uh, a company of the enemy forces. Just concentrate on platoons for a while. Because your forces will get stronger. They will increase. Yes, Abdullah. Um, actually, I have kind of uh, something that reminded me of from reading um, 
Nasurgadatta. Right. Ah, I get to correct him for once. <laughs> Although I probably didn't say it right either. Um, some of the questions he was asked, there was there was Eastern Pakistan, and there was this war going between India and Eastern Pakistan. And someone asked him, you know, there's a lot of people, so the, ma the casualties usually are higher, too. And someone said to him, you know, what do you think of what's happening between India and East Pakistan? And he said, in consciousness, there is really nothing happening. He said what? He said, in consciousness, there is really nothing happening, you know. Mm -hmm. And so the... Uh, so to me, it's kind of like, how could that be? I mean, if it's in consciousness, there is really nothing happening. But yet there is, you know, like maybe Kosovo or the Palestinians or all this. I mean, these things are happening, mm -hmm. the Kurds or, you know. So how could, if one is realized, how one would say, see something like this and say, really nothing happened. So really the question is, if the ultimate truth is that nothing's happening, that everything is uh, an empty drama or dream, then why should we, we be worried about uh, military, political warfare in which people apparently are suffering horribly, like in Kosovo? Well, uh, basically, the, the suffering, I mean, something we can see, right. it is happening. And one would say, well, in consciousness, nothing is really happening. The answer to the question is a... Uh, again, is a paradoxical answer, because both are true. It is true that ultimately there are no individual entities. It's all consciousness. It's not that nothing is happening, but what is happening is not what we think is happening, what we believe is happening, what appears to be happening. And the value of the realization of that truth is that it allows you to actually see that what is happening is ultimately ultimately a divine play. And so you don't get overwhelmed by what is happening. The relative truth is, in fact, people are suffering. And because part of the nature of consciousness, just by inherently, by its nature, is love and compassion, it has to respond to that suffering. And if you are not overwhelmed by the suffering, then you can respond a lot more uh, appropriately, a lot more clearly, with a lot more wisdom. Do you know what I mean? And, and be able to do it with love, true love, appreciation. Uh, that's the key. That's the trick. And that's what you gain through enlightenment, if we want to talk about a gain here. It's not really a gain. But it's not that the world suddenly is free of conflict. It's that you are free, you are free of conflict about the world being in conflict. You talked about loving your enemy. Um, and you talked about the Jew in the concentration camp and how difficult that must have been, I can't even imagine. Um, in today's world, how far does that go? You talked about how people would is just as far as contributions, you know, you're going to have them right or left. Same thing with loving your enemy. I mean, with no regard to yourself, to self, mm -hmm. um, your body, your your own well-being. 
Well, the answer to that is you have to decide for yourself. But it's very useful to read, for instance, Eddie Hillison's book because it shows you what is possible. And Eddie Hillison volunteered to go to the concentration camps to, to help. So I'm talking about complete disregard for your body, your health, for everything else. She knew that it was going to her death, or she had a very, very good idea. So I'm not saying that we all, this is the point of this whole talk, we can all go out and do this tomorrow. We can't. But you can see what is possible. Now, look in your own life. Do you have an enemy? Maybe enemy's too strong here. Is there someone at work or that you see on a fairly regular basis that aggravates you, that you dislike? There's a good place to start practicing. That's doable. You see what I mean? Forget about trying to love the Nazis or any other villains bestriding the stage of current history. Start with your own life. Start with somebody who rubs you the wrong way. What would it mean to love them? And you have to take it as a question, an experiment. And you have to, in this case, at least my experience is, you have to be willing to fail quite a bit here before you are going to learn. And, but if you, every time you meet that person, you take that person now as your teacher, because they have something to teach you, some great secret about the spiritual path and about life, ultimately. And you watch what happens in your interactions, your exchanges. You start asking, why do they get to me? Why does this person aggravate me? Why does this person annoy me? What is it in me? What kind of attachment is there? Maybe they're always belittling me. So maybe I see I have an attachment to appearing a certain way in the world. And so when anybody belittles that image of who I am, that causes suffering. Now I can look at that image, say, well, what sort of image is it? Maybe I have an image of always being a competent person. And my enemy <coughs> is always pointing out where I'm incompetent. Well, you can't do anything about your enemy. I mean, changing your enemy. But what you can do is drop that image that I am always a competent person. And if you do that, you'll see that the belittling no longer causes suffering. Somebody points out you made a mistake and you say, oh, yeah, right, I made a mistake. Yeah, so what? So this is the kind of thing you can literally learn in the process of loving your enemy. And finally, you can get to the point where you see there is really no difference between you and your enemy. You are both suffering human beings. There is no difference. And your enemy is reacting out of their suffering. You're reacting out of your suffering. You know, it's a funny thing about suffering. <coughs> suffering is impersonal. We take it personally, but it's impersonal. It doesn't belong to me, to you, to anybody. It's one of the few things that all human beings all over this planet have in common. Everywhere you go, I don't care how different the culture, the language, the religion, the customs and all that, everybody suffers. Isn't that interesting? But we take it so personally. All these insights you get, just implementing this one little practice, this is what allows you to let down your guard. This is what allows you to stop protecting yourself, and when you let down your guard, and when you start to unilaterally disarm in that way, what happens is, 
all the love you've been trying to generate for your enemy, which you, you'll find, at least if you're like most people, is very difficult to do and almost impossible to sustain. You might work up a little love by thinking about their good qualities, and once you're in their presence, you know, boom, it goes out the window. But when you drop your guard, true love, the love that is not personal, the love that is the nature of consciousness itself just starts to flow through. It doesn't require any generating doesn't require giving yourself little pep talks to get it going. It's quite astonishing. It's effortless. So the point here is, though, it is a practice. If you take it that way as a protracted practice, not something that you just can make a New Year's resolution, I'm going to love my enemy. But if you pick an enemy to practice on, then you start to see how it would be possible for Eddie Hillison not to hate the Nazis at all to volunteer to go to Auschwitz and be happy. That's the other thing about Eddie Hillison. She writes about standing in the middle of a concentration camp, tears of joy running down her face as she looks at the sky and the earth and the rain and the ground and realizes it's all divine. It's all beautiful. So you have to take it as a practice and a protracted practice, not something you're going to be able to do next week, you know, necessarily. Do you know what I mean? You want to learn. Whenever something isn't working, then just ask, well, why? What is the obstacle here? What is the obstacle in me to my loving them? We always can see the obstacle in them. We can't love them because they're dreadful people. You know, they have no morals. They're this or that, rude, you know, whatever. But the whole trick of a spiritual learning, a spiritual school, is to look and see what is the obstacle in you. Uh, you can make a revolution in your heart. Maybe you can't make a revolution in the world out there, but you can make a revolution in your heart, a true revolution. Then you're free of the suffering. Your enemy may never be free of their suffering. That's, you know, that's not up to you. Yeah. You're, you're saying that suffering is not personal, ultimately. made me think of, I don't know where it is in the Bible, the sins of the fathers are passed on to the sons for seven generations, whatever it says. Um, and that I, I guess when you said that and I thought about it, sort of connected the two. And it's true because... Our suffering is handed to us from our parents, and we obediently get and carry it on, you know, like like good soldiers or something. Um, and without taking that on, there would be no suffering at the personal level, or very limited suffering at the personal level. Well, this is true. Uh, you know, people read the Bible. They read it as though this was something God is condemning people to do. And they say, that's awful. But if you just read it as a description of what in fact happens, I mean, we know from our own society, things like alcoholism and abuse and stuff, you know, do affect the next generation and the next generation and the chain gets set up. But the important thing here is to recognize, actually to recognize that uh, if this is true, it's not then just your parents. It goes back and, you know, wherever it goes back to. Right. They, they suffered just as much as you're suffering for whatever reason. So blaming our parents isn't going to do any good. Or our parents' parents, or our parents' parents. You know, if you want to trace the whole thing back, you go back to the first amoeba, maybe, or something. 
so then what can you do? Well, the one thing you can do is take responsibility for your life. So you can say, okay, so there's this suffering. So it's going all around me and it goes back generations and it's going to go on generations. Let me then look at how it manifests in my life. And recognize that as a reactivity in us. Yes. We're reactive to what? Right. Well, you can be reactive to the suffering and get very complex, uh, complicated here. But the really the essential thing is if you can at least just get a little distance from suffering and see that it is impersonal in that sense. That it's not, oh, my suffering and I and I and me and mine in the middle of it all and just be a victim and a victim. If you get a little distance on it, and then perhaps a better metaphor for here is the scientist metaphor, you know, or the physician metaphor. You say, okay, then let me look at it. What are the causes of it? How can I cure it? Just if you do that much, you're no longer quite as wrapped up in the suffering. Now there's at least a little bit part of awareness that's standing outside that is, has the power of introspection to observe. And that's the beginning. And then if you just keep observing and keep taking responsibility and stop blaming your enemy or your parents or this or that, and look, okay, so, all right, so I had a terrible upbringing, so I had a terrible life, I live in a terrible country, you know, so what? Other people do too. It just is such a waste of energy to blame others. It really is. So here I am. A total gift, by the way. Grace. Didn't ask to be born here. Do you know what I mean? Aware. With all these powers to feel, to experience, to enjoy. I mean, this is quite incredible. So here I am. So this is the adventure. Now a little bit of warrior spirit doesn't hurt here. Do you know what I mean? Instead of victim spirit, I can do something. And then apply the principles a little at a time. If you try to make the revolution overnight, chances are you'd just be crushed. And who cares how long it takes? The adventure is the doing of it. There's this famous story about Wei Ning, an illiterate woodcutter in the marketplace in 10th century China or whatever it was and didn't know anything about anything and he hears a Buddhist monk reciting the Prajnaparamita Sutra. Emptiness is form, form is emptiness, emptiness is not other than form, form is not other than emptiness and his mind opened up. And then, you know, you hear that story and people think, and I make a joke of it sometimes, say, you know, lucky Wei Ning. But maybe not. Maybe not lucky Wei Ning. He missed an awful lot. No, I'm serious. <laughs> the struggles of the path and the adventure, you know. It's like supposing the first time Luke Skywalker took a, a swing at Darth Vader, killed them. The movie's over. I mean, the movie would be two minutes. Nobody pay any money to go see that movie. So, Skywalker might be happy, though. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. What's he going to do the rest of his life? <laughs> I see looking at their watches now, wanting to get out there in the sunshine. <laughs> Let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. You're welcome to hang around, as I said, have some tea and uh, chat, check out the library. Until we see you again, peace to you all.